Chapter Seven, Part Two, of the Lost Girl, by D. H. Lawrence. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Lie still, lie still," said Alvina. "You must keep warm." Poor Madame moaned. How she hated seething in the bath of her own perspiration! Her wilful nature rebelled strongly. She would have thrown aside her coverings and gasped into the cold air if Alvina had not pressed her down with that soft, inevitable pressure. So the hours passed till about one o'clock, when the perspiration became less profuse and the patient was really better, really quieter. Then Alvina went downstairs for a moment. She saw the light still burning in the front room. Tapping, she entered. There sat Max by the fire, a picture of misery. With Louis opposite him, nodding asleep after his tears, on the sofa Geoffrey snored lightly, while Chicho sat with his head on the table, his arms spread out, dead asleep. Again she noticed the tender, dusky Mediterranean hands, the slender wrists, slender for a man naturally loose and muscular. "Haven't you gone to bed?" whispered Alvina. "Why?" Louis started awake. Max, the only stubborn watcher, shook his head lugubriously. "'But she's better,' whispered Alvina. "'She's perspired. She's better. She's sleeping naturally.' Max stared with round, sleep-whitened, owlish eyes, pessimistic and sceptical. "'Yes,' persisted Alvina. "'Come and look at her, but don't wake her, whatever you do.' Max took off his slippers and rose to his tall height. Louis, like a scared chicken, followed. Each man held his slippers in his hand. They noiselessly entered and peeped stealthily over the heaped bedclothes. Madame was lying, looking a little flushed and very girlish, sleeping lightly, with a strand of black hair stuck to her cheek, and her lips lightly parted. Max watched her for some moments. Then suddenly he straightened himself, pushed back his brown hair that was brushed up in the German fashion, and crossed himself, dropping his knee as before an altar. Crossed himself and dropped his knee once more, and then a third time crossed himself and inclined before the altar. Then he straightened himself again and turned aside. Louis also crossed himself. His tears burst out. He bowed and took the edge of a blanket to his lips, kissing it reverently. Then he covered his face with his hand. Meanwhile, Madame slept lightly and innocently on. Alvina turned to go. Max silently followed, leading Louis by the arm. When they got downstairs, Max and Louis threw themselves in each other's arms and kissed each other on either cheek gravely, in continental fashion. "She is better," said Max gravely in French. "Thanks to God," replied Louis. Alvina witnessed all this with some amazement. The men did not heed her. Max went over and shook Geoffrey. Louis put his hand on Chicho's shoulder. The sleepers were difficult to wake. The wakers shook the sleeping, but in vain. At last, Geoffrey began to stir, but in vain. Louis lifted Chicho's shoulders from the table. The head and the hands dropped inert. The long black lashes lay motionless. The rather long, fine Greek nose drew the same light breaths. The mouth remained shut. Strange, fine black hair he had, close as fur. Animal and naked, frail-seeming, tawny hands. There was a silver ring on one hand. 
Alvina suddenly seized one of the inert hands that slid on the tablecloth as Louis shook the young man's shoulders. Tight she pressed the hand. Chicho opened his tawny yellowish eyes that seemed to have been put in with a dirty finger, as the saying goes, owing to the sootiness of the lashes and brows. He was quite drunk with his first sleep, and saw nothing. "'Wake up!' said Alvina, laughing, pressing his hand again. He lifted his head once more, suddenly clasped her hand. His eyes came to consciousness. His hand relaxed. He recognised her, and he sat back in his chair, turning his face aside and lowering his lashes. "'Get up, great beast!' Louis was saying softly in French, pushing him as ox-drivers sometimes push their oxen. Chicho staggered to his feet. "'She is better,' they told him. "'We are going to bed.' They took their candles and trooped off upstairs, each one bowing to Alvina as he passed, Max solemnly, Louis gallant, the other two dumb and sleepy. They occupied the two attic chambers. Alvina carried up the loose bed from the sofa and slept on the floor before the fire in Madame's room. Madame slept well and long, rousing and stirring and settling off again. It was eight o'clock before she asked her first question. Alvina was already up. Oh, alors, then I am better. I am quite well. I can dance today. I don't think today, said Alvina, but perhaps tomorrow. No, today, said Madame. I can dance today because I am quite well. I am Kishwinger. You are better, but you must lie still today. Yes, really. You will find you are weak when you try to stand. Madame watched Alvina's thin face with sullen eyes. You are an English woman, severe and materialist, she said. Alvina started and looked round at her with wide blue eyes. Why? she said. There was a wan, pathetic look about her, a sort of heroism which Madame detested, but which now she found touching. Come, said Madame, stretching out her plump, jewelled hand. Come, come, I am an ungrateful woman. Come, they are not good for you, the people. I see it. Come to me. Alvina went slowly to Madame, and took the outstretched hand. Madame kissed her hand, then drew her down and kissed her on either cheek, gravely, as the young men had kissed each other. You have been good to Kishwegen, and Kishwegen has a heart that remembers. There, Miss Houghton, I shall do what you tell me. Kishwegen obeys you. And Madame patted Alvina's hand and nodded her head sagely. "'Shall I take your temperature?' said Alvina. "'Yes, my dear, you shall. You shall bid me, and I shall obey.' So Madame lay back on her pillow, submissively pursing the thermometer between her lips and watching Alvina with black eyes. "'It's all right,' said Alvina, as she looked at the thermometer. "'Normal.' "'Normal,' re-echoed Madame's rather guttural voice. "'Good. Well, then, when shall I dance?' Alvina turned and looked at her. I think truly, said Alvina, it shouldn't be before Thursday or Friday. Thursday, repeated Madame, you say Thursday? There was a note of strong rebellion in her voice. You'll be so weak. You've only just escaped pleurisy. I can only say what I truly think, can't I? Ah, you English women, said Madame, watching with black eyes. I think you like to have your own way, in all things to have your own way, and over all people. You are so good to have your own way. Yes, 
you good English women. Thursday. Very well, it shall be Thursday. Till Thursday, then, Kishwegan does not exist. And she subsided, already rather weak, upon her pillow again. When she had taken her tea and was washed and her room was tidied, she summoned the young men. Alvina had warned Max that she wanted Madame to be kept as quiet as possible this day. As soon as the first of the four appeared, in his shirt-sleeves and his slippers, in the doorway, Madame said, "'Ah, there you are, my young men. Come in, come in. It is not Kishwagan addresses you. Kishwagan does not exist till Thursday, as the English demoiselle makes it.' She held out her hand, faintly perfumed with eau de cologne. The whole room smelled of eau de cologne, and Max stooped his brittle spine and kissed it. She touched his cheek gently with her other hand my faithful max my support louis came smiling with a bunch of violets and pinky anemones he laid them down on the bed before her and took her hand bowing and kissing it reverently you are better dear madame he said smiling long at her better yes gentle louis and better for thy flowers chivalric heart she put the violets and anemones to her face with both hands and then gently laid them aside to extend her hand to Geoffrey. "'The good Geoffrey will do his best while there is no Kishwagang,' she said, as he stooped to her salute. "'Bien sûr, madame.' "'Chicho, a button off thy shirt-cuff. Where is my needle?' She looked round the room as Chicho kissed her hand. "'Did you want anything?' said Alvina, who had not followed the French. "'My needle, to sew on this button. It is there in, in the silk bag.' "'I will do it,' said Alvina. "'Thank you.' While Alvina sewed on the button, Madame spoke to her young men, principally to Max. They were to obey Max, she said, for he was their eldest brother. This afternoon they would practice well the scene of the white prisoner. Very carefully they must practice, and they must find someone who would play the young squaw, for in this scene she had practically nothing to do, the young squaw, but just sit and stand. Miss Houghton, but— Ah, Miss Houghton must play the piano. She could not take the part of the young squaw. Some other, then. While the interview was going on, Mr. May arrived, full of concern. "'Shan't we have the procession?' he cried. "'Ah, the procession!' cried Madame. The Natchiquitoara troop, upon request, would signalise its entry into any town by a procession. The young men were dressed as Indian braves, and headed by Kishwagin, they rode on horseback through the main streets. Chicho, who was the crack horseman, having served a very well-known horsey Marchese in an Italian cavalry regiment, did a bit of show-riding. Mr. May was very keen on the procession. He had the horses in readiness. The morning was faintly sunny, after the sleet and bad weather, and now he arrived to find Madame in bed, and the young men holding counsel with her. "'How very unfortunate!' cried Mr. May. How very unfortunate! Dreadful! Dreadful! wailed Madame from the bed. But can't we do anything? Yes, you can do the white prisoner scene. The young men can do that, if you find a dummy squaw. Ah, I think I must get up after all. Alvina saw the look of fret and exhaustion in Madame's face. Won't you all go downstairs now, said Alvina. Mr. Max knows what you must do and she shooed the five men out of the bedroom. "'I must get up. I won't dance. I will be a dummy. But I must be there. It is too dreadful, too dreadful,' 
wailed madame. "'Don't take any notice of them. They can manage by themselves. Men are such babies. Let them carry it through by themselves.' "'Children! They are all children!' wailed madame. "'All children! And so what will they do without their old gouvernante? My poor brave! What will they do without Kishwagan? It is too dreadful! Too dreadful! Yes!' The poor Mr. May, so disappointed. Then let him be disappointed, cried Alvina, as she forcibly tucked up Madame and made her lie still. You are hard. You are a hard English woman. All alike. All alike. Madame subsided fretfully and weakly. Alvina moved softly about, and in a few minutes Madame was sleeping again. Alvina went downstairs. Mr. May was listening to Max, who was telling in German all about the white prisoner scene. Mr. May had spent his boyhood in a German school. He cocked his head on one side, and, laying his hand on Max's arm, entertained him in odd German. The others were silent. Chicho made no pretense of listening, but smoked and stared at his own feet. Louis and Geoffrey half understood, so Louis nodded with a look of deep comprehension, whilst Geoffrey uttered short, snappy, "'Ja, ja, doch, eben,' rather irrelevant. "'I'll be the squire,' cried Mr. May, in English, breaking off and turning round to the company. He perked up his head in an odd, parrot-like fashion. "'I'll be the squire. What's her name? Kishwigan? I'll be Kishwigan.' And he bridled and beamed self-consciously. The two tall Swiss looked down on him, faintly smiling. Chicho, sitting with his arms on his knees on the sofa, screwed round his head, and watched the phenomenon of Mr. May with inscrutable, expressionless attention. "'Let us go,' said Mr. May, bubbling with new importance. "'Let us go and rehearse this morning, and let us do the procession this afternoon, when the colliers are just coming home. There! What? Isn't that exactly the idea? Well, will you be ready at once, now?' He looked excitedly at the young men. They nodded with slow gravity, as if they were already braves. Then they turned to put on their boots. Soon they were all trooping down to Lunley, Mr. May prancing like a little circus pony beside Alvina, the four young men rolling ahead. "'What do you think of it?' cried Mr. May. "'We've saved the situation. What? Don't you think so? Don't you think we can congratulate ourselves?' They found Mr. Houghton fussing about in the theatre. He was on tenterhooks of agitation knowing Madame was ill. Max gave a brilliant display of yodelling. "'But I must explain to them,' cried Mr. May. "'I must explain to them what yodel means.' And turning to the empty theatre, he began, stretching forth his hand. "'In the high Alps of Switzerland, where eternal snows and glaciers reign over luscious meadows full of flowers, if you should chance to awaken, as I have done, in some lonely wooden farm, amid the mountain pastures, you, er, uh, you, let me see, if you, no, if you should chance to spend the night in some lonely wooden farm, amid the upland pastures, dawn will wake you with a wild, inhuman song. You will open your eyes to the first gleam of icy, eternal sunbeams. Your ears will be ringing with weird singing that has no words and no meaning. 
but sounds as if some wild and icy guard were warbling to himself as he wandered among the peaks of dawn. You look forth across the flowers to the blue snow, and you see, far off, a small figure of a man moving among the grass. It is a peasant singing his mountain song, warbling like some creature that lifted up its voice on the edge of the eternal snows before the human race began. During this oration James Houghton sat with his chin in his hand, devoured with bitter jealousy, measuring Mr. May's eloquence, and then he started as Max, tall and handsome now, in Tyrolese costume, white shirt and green square braces, short trousers of chamois leather stitched with green and red, firm planted naked knees, naked ankles and heavy shoes, warbled his native yodel strains, a piercing and disturbing sound. He was flushed, erect, keen-tempered and fierce and mountainous. There was a fierce, icy passion in the man. Alvina began to understand Madame's subjection to him. Louis and Geoffrey did a farce dialogue, two foreigners at the same moment spying a purse in the street, struggling with each other, and protesting they wanted to take it to the policeman, Chicho, who stood solid and ridiculous. Mr. Houghton nodded slowly and gravely, as if to give his measured approval. Then all retired to dress for the great scene. Alvina practised the music Madame carried with her. If Madame found a good pianist, she welcomed the accompaniment. If not, she dispensed with it. "'Am I all right?' said a smirking voice. And there was a Kishwegen, dusky, coy, with long black hair, and a short, chamois dress, garters and moccasins, and bare arms, so coy, and so smirking. Alvina burst out laughing. "'But shan't I do?' protested Mr. May, hurt. "'Yes, you're wonderful,' said Alvina, choking. "'But I must laugh.' "'But why? Tell me why,' asked Mr. May anxiously. "'Is it my appearance you laugh at, or is it only me? "'If it's me, I don't mind, but if it's my appearance, tell me so.' Here an appalling figure of Chicho in war-paint strolled onto the stage. He was naked to the waist, wore scalp-fringed trousers, was dusky red-skinned, had long black hair and eagle's feathers, only two feathers, and a face wonderfully and terribly painted, with white, red, yellow, and black lines. He was evidently pleased with himself. His curious soft slouch, and curious way of lifting his lip from his white teeth, in a sort of smile, was very convincing. "'You haven't got the girdle,' he said, touching Mr. May's plump waist, "'and some flowers in your hair.' Mr. May here gave a sharp cry and a jump. A bear on its hind legs, slow, shambling, rolling its loose shoulders, was stretching a paw towards him. The bear dropped heavily on four paws again, and a laugh came from its muzzle. "'You won't have to dance,' said Geoffrey, out of the bear. "'Come and put in the flowers,' said Mr. May, anxiously, to Alvina. In the dressing-room the dividing curtain was drawn. Max, in deerskin trousers, but with unpainted torso, looked very white and strange, as he put the last touches of war-paint on Louis's face. He glanced round at Alvina, then went on with his work. There was a sort of nobility about his erect, white form and stiffly carried head. 
the semi-luminous brown hair. He seemed curiously superior. Alvina adjusted the maidenly Mr. May. Louis arose, a brave like Chicho, in war-paint, even more hideous. Max slipped on a tattered hunting-shirt and cartridge-belt. His face was a little darkened. He was the white prisoner. They arranged the scenery while Alvina watched. It was soon done. A black cloth of tree-trunks, and dark forest, a wigwam, a fire, and a cradle hanging from a pole. As they worked, Alvina tried in vain to dissociate the two braves from their war-paint. The lines were drawn so cleverly that the grimace of ferocity was fixed and horrible, so that even in the quiet work of scene-shifting, Louis's stiffish, female grace seemed full of latent cruelty, whilst Chicho's more muscular slouch made her feel she would not trust him for a single moment. Awful things men were, savage, cruel, underneath their civilization. The scene had its beauty. It began with Kishwagen alone at the door of the wigwam, cooking, listening, giving an occasional push to the hanging cradle, and, if only Madame were taking the part, crooning an Indian cradle-song. Enter the brave Louis with his white prisoner, Max, who has his hands bound to his side. Kishwagen gravely salutes her husband. The bound prisoner is seated by the fire. Kishwagen serves food and asks permission to feed the prisoner. The brave Louis, hearing a sound, starts up with his bow and arrow. There is a dumb scene of sympathy between Kishwagen and the prisoner. The prisoner wants his bonds cut. Re-enter the brave Louis. He is angry with Kishwagen. Enter the brave Chicho, hauling a bear, apparently dead. Kishwagen examines the bear. Chicho examines the prisoner. Chicho tortures the prisoner, makes him stand, makes him caper unwillingly. Kishwagin swings the cradle. The prisoner is tripped up, falls, and cannot rise. He lies near the fallen bear. Kishwagin carries food to Chicho. The two braves converse in dumb show. Kishwagin swings the cradle and croons. The men rise once more and bend over the prisoner. As they do so, there is a muffled roar. The bear is sitting up. Louis swings round, and at the same moment the bear strikes him down. Chicho springs forward and stabs the bear, then closes with it. Kishwagin runs and cuts the prisoner's bonds. He rises and stands trying to lift his numbed and powerless arms, while the bear slowly crushes Chicho and Kishwagin kneels over her husband. The bear drops Chicho lifeless and turns to Kishwagin. At that moment Max manages to kill the bear. He takes Kishwagin by the hand and kneels with her beside the dead Louis. It was wonderful how well the men played their different parts, but Mr. May was a little too frisky as Kishwagin. However, it would do. Chicho got dressed as soon as possible to go and look at the horses hired for the afternoon procession. Alvina accompanied him. Mr. May and the others were busy. "'You know, I think it's quite wonderful, your scene,' she said to Chicho. He turned and looked down at her. His yellow, dusky-set eyes rested on her good-naturedly, without seeing her. His lip curled in a self-conscious, contemptuous sort of smile. "'Not without madame,' he said, with a slow, half-sneering, stupid smile. "'Without madame,' he lifted his shoulders and spread his hands and tilted his brows. "'Fool's play, you know.' "'No,' said Alvina. 
"'I think Mr. May is good, considering. "'What does Madame do?' she asked a little jealously. "'Do?' He looked down at her with the same long, half-sardonic look of his yellow eyes, like a cat looking casually at a bird which flutters past. And again he made his shrugging motion. "'She does it all, really. The others, they are nothing. What they are, Madame has made them, and now they think they've done it all, you see. You see, that's it.' "'But how has Madame made it all? Thought it out, you mean?' "'Thought it out, yes, and then done it.' you should see her dance ah you should see her dance round the bear when i bring him in ah a beautiful thing you know she claps her hand and chicho stood still in the street with his hat cocked a little on one side rather common-looking and he smiled along his fine nose at alvina and he clapped his hands lightly and he tilted his eyebrows and his eyelids as if facially he were imitating a dance and all the time his lips smiled stupidly. As he gave a little assertive shake of his head, finishing, there came a great yell of laughter from the opposite pavement, where a gang of pottery lasses, in aprons all spattered with grey clay, and hair and boots and skin spattered with pallid spots, had stood to watch. The girls opposite shrieked again, for all the world like a gang of grey baboons. Chicho turned round and looked at them with a sneer along his nose. They yelled the louder, and he was horribly uncomfortable, walking there beside Alvina, with his rather small and effeminately shod feet. "'How stupid they are,' said Alvina. "'I've got used to them.' "'They should be,' he lifted his hand with a sharp, vicious movement. "'Smacked!' he concluded, lowering his hand again. "'Who is going to do it?' said Alvina. He gave a Neapolitan grimace, and twiddled the fingers of one hand outspread in the air, as if to say, "'There you are. You've got to thank the fools who failed to do it.' "'Why do you all love Madame so much?' Alvina asked. "'How love?' he said, making a little grimace. "'We like her. We love her, as if she were a mother.' "'You say love.' He raised his shoulders slightly with a shrug, and all the time he looked down at Alvina from under his dusky eyelashes as if watching her sideways, and his mouth had the peculiar, stupid, self-conscious, half-jeering smile. Alvina was a little bit annoyed, but she felt that a great instinctive good-naturedness came out of him. He was self-conscious and constrained, knowing she did not follow his language of gesture. For him it was not yet quite natural to express himself in speech. Gesture and grimace were instantaneous, and spoke worlds of things, if you would but accept them. But certainly he was stupid, in her sense of the word. She could hear Mr. May's verdict of him. Like a child, you know, just as charming and just as tiresome and just as stupid. "'Where is your home?' she asked him. "'In Italy?' she felt a fool. "'Which part?' she insisted. "'Naples,' he said, looking down at her sideways, searchingly. "'It must be lovely,' she said. "'Ha!' He threw his head on one side and spread out his hand, as if to say, "'What do you want if you don't find Naples lovely?' "'I should like to see it, but I shouldn't like to die,' she said. "'What?' "'They say see Naples and die,' she laughed. He opened his mouth and understood. Then he smiled at her directly. "'You know what that means,' he said cutely. "'It means see Naples and die afterwards. Don't die before you've seen it.' He smiled with a knowing smile. "'I see, I see,' she cried. "'I never thought of that.' 
he was pleased with her surprise and amusement. "'Ah, Naples,' he said, "'she is lovely.' He spread his hand across the air in front of him. "'The sea, and Posilipo, and Sorrento, and Capri. "'Ah, you have never been out of England?' "'No,' she said. "'I should love to go.' He looked down into her eyes. It was his instinct to say at once he would take her. "'You have seen nothing, nothing,' he said to her. "'But if Naples is so lovely, how could you leave it?' she asked. "'What?' She repeated her question. For answer he looked at her, held out his hand, and rubbing the ball of his thumb across the tips of his fingers, said, with a fine, handsome smile, "'Pennies! Money! You can't earn money in Naples. Ah, Naples is beautiful, but she is poor. You live in the sun, and you earn fourteen or fifteen pence a day.' "'Not enough,' she said. He put his head on one side and tilted his brows as if to say, "'What are you to do?' And the smile on his mouth was sad, fine, and charming. There was an indefinable air of sadness or wistfulness about him, something so robust and fragile at the same time that she was drawn in a strange way. "'But you'll go back,' she said. "'Where?' "'To Italy. To Naples.' "'Yes, I shall go back to Italy,' he said, as if unwilling to commit himself. "'But perhaps I shan't go back to Naples.' "'Never?' "'Ah, never. I don't say never. I shall go to Naples to see my mother's sister. But I shan't go to live.' "'Have you a mother and father?' "'I? No. I have a brother and two sisters. In America. Parents. None. They are dead.' "'And you wander about the world,' she said. He looked at her and made a slight, sad gesture, indifferent also. "'But you have Madame for a mother,' she said. He made another gesture this time, pressed down the corners of his mouth as if he didn't like it. Then he turned with the slow, fine smile. "'Does a man want two mothers?' "'Eh?' he said, as if he posed a conundrum. "'I shouldn't think so,' laughed Alvina. He glanced at her to see what she meant, what she understood. "'My mother is dead, see?' he said. "'French women, French women. They have their babies till they are a hundred. "'What do you mean?' said Alvina, laughing. "'A Frenchman is a little man when he is seven years old, and if his mother comes, he is a little baby boy when he is seventy. Do you know that?' "'I didn't know it,' said Alvina. "'But now you do.' he said, lurching round a corner with her. They had come to the stables. Three of the horses were there, including the thoroughbred Chicho was going to ride. He stood and examined the beasts critically. Then he spoke to them with strange sounds, patted them, stroked them down, felt them, slid his hand down them, over them, under them, and felt their legs. Then he looked up from stooping there under the horses, with a long, slow look of his yellow eyes at Alvina. She felt unconsciously flattered. His long, yellow look lingered, holding her eyes. She wondered what he was thinking. Yet he never spoke. He turned again to the horses. They seemed to understand him, to prick up alert. "'This is mine,' he said, with his hand on the neck of the old thoroughbred. It was a bay with a white blaze. "'I think he's nice,' she said. "'He seems so sensitive.' "'In England,' he answered suddenly, "'horses live a long time, "'because they don't live, never alive, see?' 
In England, railway engines are alive, and horses go on wheels. He smiled into her eyes, as if she understood. She was a trifle nervous as he smiled at her from out of the stable, so yellow-eyed and half-mysterious, derisive. Her impulse was to turn and go away from the stable, but a deeper impulse made her smile into his face as she said to him, "'They like you to touch them.' "'Ooh!' His eyes kept hers. Curious how dark they seemed, with only a yellow ring of pupil. He was looking right into her, beyond her usual self, impersonal. "'The horses,' she said. She was afraid of his long, cat-like look, yet she felt convinced of his ultimate good-nature. He seemed to her to be the only passionately good-natured man she had ever seen. She watched him vaguely, with strange, vague trust, implicit belief in him. In him, in what? That afternoon the colliers trooping home in the winter afternoon were rejoiced with a spectacle. Kishwagen, in her deerskin, fringed garters and fringed frock of deerskin, her long hair down her back, and with marvellous cloths and trappings on her steed, riding astride on a tall white horse, followed by Max in chieftain's robes and chieftain's long headdress of dyed feathers, then by the others in war-paint and feathers and brilliant Navajo blankets. They carried bows and spears. Chicho was without his blanket, naked to the waist, in war-paint and brandishing a long spear. He dashed up from the rear, saluted the chieftain with his arm and his spear on high as he swept past, suddenly drew up his rearing steed, and trotted slowly back again, making his horse perform its paces. He was extraordinarily velvety and alive on horseback. Crowds of excited, shouting children ran chattering along the pavements. The colliers, as they tramped, grey and heavy, in an intermittent stream uphill from the low grey west, stood on the pavement in wonder as the cavalcade approached and passed, jingling the silver bells of its trappings, vibrating the wonderful colours of the barred blankets and saddle-cloths, the scarlet wool of the accoutrements, the bright tips of feathers. Women shrieked as Chicho, in his war-paint, wheeled near the pavement. Children screamed and ran. The colliers shouted. Chicho smiled in his terrifying war-paint, brandished his spear, and trotted softly, like a flower on its stem, round to the procession. Miss Pinnegar and Alvina and James Houghton had come round into Narborough Road to watch. It was a great moment. Looking along the road they saw all the shopkeepers at their doors, the pavements eager, and then, in the distance, the white horse jingling its trappings of scarlet hair and bells, with the dusky Kishwagen sitting on the saddle-blanket of brilliant, lurid stripes, sitting impassive and all dusky above that intermittent flashing of colour, then the chieftain, dark-faced, erect, easy, swathed in a white blanket with scarlet and black stripes, and all his strange crest of white, tip-dyed feathers swaying down his back. As he came nearer one saw the wolf-skin and the brilliant moccasins against the black sides of his horse. Louis and Geoffrey followed, lurid, horrid in the face, wearing blankets with stroke after stroke of blazing colour upon their duskiness, and sitting stern, holding their spears. Lastly, Chicho on his bay horse with a green seat, 
flickering hither and thither in the rear, his feathers swaying, his horse sweating, his face ghastly smiling in its war-paint. So they advanced down the grey pallor of Narborough Road in the late wintry afternoon. Somewhere the sun was setting, and far overhead was a flush of orange. "'Well, I never,' murmured Miss Pinnegar. "'Well, I never!' The strange savageness of the striped Navajo blankets seemed to her unsettling, advancing down Narborough Road. She examined Kishwagan curiously. "'Can you believe that that's Mr. May? He's exactly like a girl!' "'Well, well, it makes you wonder what is and what isn't. But aren't they good?' "'What? Most striking. Exactly like Indians. You can't believe your eyes. My word, what a terrifying race they—' Here she uttered a scream and ran back, clutching the wall as Chicho swept past, brushing her with his horse's tail, and actually swinging his spear so as to touch Alvina and James Houghton lightly with the butt of it. James, too, started with a cry. The mob at the corner screamed but Alvina caught the slow, mischievous smile as the painted horror showed his teeth in passing. She was able to flash back an excited laugh. She felt his yellow, tawny eyes linger on her in that one second, as if negligently. "'I call that too much!' Miss Pinnegar was crying, thoroughly upset. "'Now that was unnecessary. Why, it was enough to scare one to death. Besides, it's dangerous. It ought to be put a stop to.' I don't believe in letting these show-people have liberties." The cavalcade was slowly passing, with its uneasy horses and its flare of striped colour and its silent riders. Chicho was trotting softly back on his green saddle-cloth, suave as velvet, his dusky, naked torso beautiful. "'Eh, you'd think he'd get his death,' the women in the crowd were saying. "'A proper savage one, that. Makes your blood run cold. Ay, and a man for all that, takes painted face for what's worth, a tidy man, I say." He did not look at Alvina. The faint, mischievous smile uncovered his teeth. He fell in suddenly behind Geoffrey, with a jerk of his steed, calling out to Geoffrey in Italian. It was becoming cold. The cavalcade fell into a trot, Mr. May shaking rather badly. Chicho halted, rested his lance against a lamp-post switched his green blanket from underneath him, and flung it round him as he sat, and darted off. They had all disappeared over the brow of Lumley Hill, descending. He was gone too. In the wintry twilight the crowd began, lingeringly, to turn away, and in some strange way it manifested its disapproval of the spectacle. As grown-up men and women, they were a little bit insulted by such a show. It was an anachronism. They wanted a direct appeal to the mind. Miss Pinnegar expressed it. "'Well,' she said, when she was safely back in Manchester House, with the gas lighted, and as she was pouring the boiling water into the teapot, "'you may say what you like. It's interesting, in a way, just to show what savage Red Indians were like. But it's childish. It's only childishness. I can't understand myself how people can go on liking shows. Nothing happens.' It's not like the cinema, where you see it all and take it all in at once. You know everything at a glance. You don't know anything by looking at these people. You know they're only men dressed up for money. I can't see why you should encourage it. I don't hold with idle show-people parading round. I don't, myself, 
I like to go to the cinema once a week. It's instruction. You take it all in at a glance, all you need to know, and it lasts you for a week. You can get to know everything about people's actual lives from the cinema. I don't see why you want people dressing up and showing off. They sat down to their tea and toast and marmalade during this harangue. Miss Pinnegar was always like a douche of cold water to Alvina, bringing her back to consciousness after a delicious excitement. In a minute Madame and Chicho and all seemed to become unreal, the actual unrealities, while the ragged, dithering pictures of the film were actual, real as the day. And Alvina was always put out when this happened. She really hated Miss Pinnegar, yet she had nothing to answer. They were unreal, Madame and Chicho and the rest. Chicho was just a fantasy blown in on the wind to blow away again. The real, permanent thing was Woodhouse, the Semper Idem, Narborough Road and the unchangeable grubby gloom of Manchester House, with the stuffy, padding Miss Pinnegar and her father, whose fingers, whose very soul seemed dirty with pennies. These were the solid, permanent fact. These were life itself. And Chicho, splashing up on his bay horse and green cloth, he was a mountebank and an extraneous non-entity, a coloured old rag, blown down the Narborough Road into limbo, into limbo. Whilst Miss Pinnegar and her father sat frowsily on for ever, eating their toast and cutting off the crust and sipping their third cup of tea, they would never blow away, never, never. Woodhouse was there to eternity, and the Nachiquitoara troop was blowing like a rag of old paper into limbo. Nothingness! Poor Madame! Poor gallant histrionic madame! The frowsy Miss Pinnegar could crumple her up and throw her down the utilitarian drain and have done with her, whilst Miss Pinnegar lived on for ever. This put Alvina into a sharp temper. Miss Pinnegar, she said, I do think you go on in the most unattractive way sometimes. You're a regular spoil sport. Well, said Miss Pinnegar tartly, I don't approve of your way of sport, I'm afraid. "'You can't disapprove it as much as I hate your spoil-sport existence,' said Alvina, in a flare. "'Alvina, are you mad?' said her father. "'Wonder I'm not,' said Alvina, "'considering what my life is.'" End of chapter 7, part 2 Read by Tony Foster